Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast where we're talking about football. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about investing, Dad. (laughs) But today, through the lens of football, I think is okay. Good, because we are talking about investing in your football team and how the supposedly rational approach to investing in your football team, finding your next best players, adding players to the whole thing, starts to look an awful lot like the way the stock market actually functions as opposed to the way the stock market's supposed to function. The stock market's supposed to function, Danielle, as we know, as a very efficient marketplace. And what actually happens is occasionally it acts like that. It acts like what? Efficiently. Oh, it acts efficiently occasionally. Yeah, prices are values occasionally as it goes almost like um, you're looking at a wildly fluctuating line that goes through the middle line occasionally. (laughs) Sometimes it's above it, sometimes below it, but it averages the middle line and occasionally actually touches it. That is more like what's really going on in this market. And it's fascinating that there's been a fabulous book written about the attempt so far by behavioral economists led by Kahneman, Tversky, Schiller at Yale, and Thaler at uh, currently University of Chicago, formerly at Cornell, to show that the, the markets are not efficient because the markets are not necessarily rational all the time. And the reason the markets aren't rational all the time is because markets are made up by people. We determine prices. It's our fault. It's our fault. So Thaler uses this idea in his book, Misbehaving, that there are these magical beings, these imaginary beings developed by economists over the last 50 years called econs. And Well, that's what he calls them. That's what he calls them. And econs are incredibly rational all the time. And what they do all the time is they always find the way to rationally use their assets in the maximum best way for utility and happiness. And and these imaginary creatures have formed a basis of a theory of, of investing called the efficient market hypothesis, which says that because people are acting rationally, the econs, um, prices are values, values are prices, they're both equal, and you can't beat the market. And therefore, if you even want to try, the only thing you can do is try to get companies that are more volatile and risky, um, and maybe you'll get a higher rate of return, which has turned out to also be not true. In fact, it turns out that lower volatility and lower risk companies have in fact created higher rates of return in repeated uh, tests in, over the last 30, 40 years, and, and are the reason why Warren Buffett has such a high rate of return. He's buying these low, uh, low beta, low volatility companies when they're on sale. And this is supposed to be impossible. So that's the uh, argument. So this is our second episode on this book, Misbehaving. I think we'll be talking about it for a few more episodes because there's a lot to say here. If you guys want to check it out, it's called Misbehaving by Richard Thaler, T-H-A-L-E-R. And um, it's on Amazon, obviously. So this book... I found really interesting because he does make that point about efficient market hypothesis. You're exactly right. And we talked about it in the last episode. 
But the cool thing to me was that that's actually a pretty small part of this book. Like, that wasn't such a, like, life-changing thing to say to him that he made an entire book about it. He, it's like, here's some information that's life-changing to some people, and here's 10 other chapters that are also life-changing in other fields that behavioral economics has completely affected. I mean, that's to me why we chose this book, because it gives a really good perspective from the beginning of this really new field of behavioral economics, which basically just means the psychology um, combined with economics, and how it's grown over the last 30, 40 years. So as somebody who, like me, knew virtually nothing about this, it's a good primer on this field, and he has a very accessible way of writing about it, like the football, which <laughs> exactly. is where we ended last time. Exactly. It's sort of, a, a, he's called this book Misbehaving because essentially people are not econs. People are humans. and Yeah, it, and he capitalizes human, which I love. So we are the human. humans, and, we, and the econs are the econs. And the econs are these and perfectly And it, it turns out beings. we act like humans a lot more often than we act like econs. And because we do, the markets are inefficient in some ways. And price, therefore, does not equal value all the time. And it becomes possible to buy very low-risk companies at wonderful prices if you're willing to be patient and wait around and if you have some idea of what you're looking for, which, of course, is Warren Buffett 101. Before we get to football, just on that, one thing I wanted to say that I thought was super interesting because we've been talking so much about Schiller and Schiller's indicator of the overall market. What's it called? Like Schiller's P.E.? Yeah, or the, the CAPE, cyclically adjusted PE, or CAPE, or Schiller PE. Sure. Thaler talks about Schiller's work. And uh, again, this is like two pages out of the entire book, but to us, it's like everything. And um, and he says, essentially, Schiller's totally right about his, uh, his view of the market overall. But what he's not so great at is precision of prediction. So... Schiller basically, I think in 96, predicted a market downturn, which took four years to happen. And he says in the book, you know, he's right, but you, no one's really sure when. And so for those of us, and we've done a number of episodes on this lately, looking at the overall market going like, you know, the Schiller PE says that it's way overheated. There are other indicators that say it's way overheated, but that could go on for years. So. Just wanted to make that point before we get to the football. Well, since you brought that up, just so that people understand that it doesn't change our investing strategy to recognize that, oh, yeah, this could take years to unfold. And meanwhile, we may not want to be buying companies because they're simply too pricey. Um, Schiller was right in 1996. And look at this. Look at look at what people were paying for companies in 1996. It was insane. Some of the prices and the prices got even more insane. The market doubled from that point. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, I mean, it went from insane, you know, upper 20s to insane 40 cyclically adjusted P.E. ratio. And I mean, at a level that never been seen before. And yet, had you sat in cash from 1996 to the year 2000, you would have been so richly rewarded for getting out of the market far too early. And that's kind of really fundamental to understanding Warren Buffett's investing strategies Currently, as we've said a number of times, he has got $95 billion in cash now. 
um, waiting, looking, not moving into things just because he's got the money, but waiting patiently for an opportunity. And frankly, if he doesn't get one in the next couple of years, he just said that he's very interested uh, in taking a look at doing a dividend for Berkshire Hathaway for the first time in history because there's just simply nowhere to put the money. And he recognizes that it's not fair to investors to just have him sit on it for all these years waiting patiently that they may have other things they want to do with the money. And if he, and basically, you know, he's basically saying, hey, more power to you. And to me, this is a replay. What we're seeing right now in 2017 is a replay of what Buffett went through in 1969, where the market had simply become so highly priced that there was just nothing of interest and Buffett couldn't buy anything for a couple of years. And investors get really nervous when that happens and they start to demand that you do something magic. And this, of course, is what Buffett calls the institutional imperative and is what causes almost all fund managers to fail to beat the market. And that is if you are buying stuff that's way overpriced because you simply cannot wait patiently any longer, then inevitably you're going to get leveled to the market. And this is Buffett and Munger's great secret. And this is what I'm trying to teach you and all of our listeners is that Patience is the critical thing. It, it, you don't make money, as Charlie says, you don't make money when you buy. You don't make money when you sell. You make money when you wait. And it's the waiting that's impossible for most professionals. I find it extremely difficult. And I agree with all the football team owners who he talks about in this book, who basically took, his, took Thaler's advice to... Uh, do various things with their draft picks, and we'll explain that, and just threw it out the window because they couldn't wait. They and couldn't wait. They wanted, they wanted to win now. I mean, I think there's even a quote from one of the owners saying, he wants to win next year. Exactly. So that's why we're doing this. We're not going to wait the three or four years to have the odds be stacked for us. We want to do it now, and then they, well, I'll let you describe <laughs> what happened. Well, let's let's talk about some of the things that happened earlier in the book um, where he describes uh, the endowment effect, which basically says if you own it, you have a tendency to want to keep it. Um, and if you don't own Wait, it, are you changing the subject or are you? No, no, we're coming back. For we're, the football. We're, we're, we're prepping for football because okay. essentially there are these irrationalities in the way humans behave. Yes. And one of them he calls the endowment effect. I might be describing it improperly here, so I think I'm, I better, because it's fundamental to understanding how football owners behave, which I think is pretty fascinating, right? And so, Isn't the yeah. endowment effect related to the football draft picks? I think so, um, especially okay. if I can. Okay, so do you remember what the endowment effect is? No, not really. Okay, so here's what it is. Is that helpful? Yeah, there's one of his friends, um, bought wine for $10 a bottle, and the wine turned out to be really valuable later on. It's worth over $100 a bottle. And okay. every once in a while, he would take a bottle out and drink it and feel like, oh, this is so fantastic that I own this $100 bottle of wine. Well, the nearby wine it's buyer, there's a wine store that was trying to buy some of these bottles from him for $100, but he wouldn't okay. sell them to them for $100. Okay, wait, okay. So he owns wine. It's worth a hundred bucks. He really enjoys drinking it because it's like, yay, this is really expensive wine. It tastes so good. Right. And he wants to keep that wine. Yeah, understandable. Okay. And he will not buy. He like laughs. And this is a real guy. He like laughs at 
at the idea that he would go and pay $100 for a bottle of wine. In other okay. words, he, so he doesn't want to spend a lot of money on wine. He doesn't want to spend $100 and he's not willing to sell his for $100. Okay. Got it. Which are two Got sides it. of the same coin. So here's the thing. Whether this guy drank his own bottle or bought one, the opportunity cost of drinking is the same. It's $100. So he could, he's drinking $100, but he's refusing to buy $100. So either way, he's drinking $100. Either way. So here's what they found out. Giving up the opportunity to sell something doesn't hurt as much as taking money out of your wallet to pay for it. Oh, I see. So it's like you're you're endowed. Let's try to figure out why that's called the endowment effect. So like once you already have something, you're endowed with you're it. Endowed it's with harder it. to give it up than it is to go and get something new. So we value things that we're endowed with more highly than things that are available but not yet owned. Okay, and he paid 10 bucks for that wine? He paid $10 or some for it. small amount? Yeah. Okay, now what would you do? Well, I feel the same way. And he, so he, do I. He... <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, dude. I'm drinking my $100 bottle of wine that I got for 10 bucks. Exactly. Life is good. Life is good. And it doesn't feel like you're spending $100. And there's no way I would sell it to the guy for 100 bucks because I got that bottle for 10 bucks. I know. I know. And, so he... and there's something there's something to that, that that has added joy, added pleasure from knowing that you got it right. Like you made a good investment <laughs> and now and now I'm the one who gets to enjoy the fruits of my labor instead of, you know, some other person. Although <laughs> I completely acknowledge that were I to sell it for a hundred bucks, I would also be able to enjoy the fruits of the hundred bucks. But see, the yeah, econ, thing. the econ is going to see those things as totally equivalent. It's just the same to him emotionally. To sell the bottle of wine for 100 is just to drink it for 100 But humans don't feel like that. He was talking about another example where he and a buddy of his got free tickets to a, a professional a game, a basketball game in Buffalo, about an hour and a half drive from where they were living. And on the day of the game, there's this huge snowstorm. So they decided not to fight it, you know. They decided not to go. And his buddy goes, whew, good thing we didn't buy those tickets because if we had bought them, we would definitely have to brave this blizzard and go to the game. Can I tell you how many times people have said that to me? <laughs> I wouldn't like, say, first off, why is that irrational? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so the tickets were free, right? So they were out nothing. They're out nothing. But if they had, if they had been out money, they would have had to go to the game. Yeah, even though this is a, this is an example of what's called sunk cost. The money's already spent whether you go or not. Whether the tickets are free or the money's spent is irrelevant at the time of the blizzard. Yeah, this it is should, how I know it should I'm make no difference. This is how I know I'm the child of an investor because I remember you telling me that when I was a kid <laughs> about some tickets that I had to something, some concert or something. I was like, oh, I think I was sick. And I was like, dad, I don't want to go, but I bought these tickets. And you were like, so don't go. It's the same money either way. And I was like, oh, yeah. 
And then, <laughs> and then I rolled with it. And, and I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with people, even with friends of mine who are literally economists, who, who I've had that conversation with, where I've been like, well, we bought the ticket so we can go or not. And they look at me like I'm crazy. I mean, there's almost, it's almost difficult to explain why, because it's just so like, you feel like you invested in the experience and how can you not follow through on that investment? Yeah. Somehow there's a bigger endowment because you paid for it or something. There's another one where um, this guy gets massive hay fever by mowing a lawn and he can hire a kid to mow his lawn for $10, but he doesn't want to do it. Doesn't He doesn't want to pay a kid 10 bucks to mow his lawn, right? So this guy asks him, well, hey man, um, would you mow your neighbor's lawn for 20? And the guy uh -huh. goes, you crazy? Of course I wouldn't mow their neighbor's lawn for 20, right? He's mowing his own lawn for 10, but would not in any circumstances mow his neighbor's lawn for 20. And he considers that to be reasonable. Yes. <laughs> There's another effect, and I get this one mixed up with the endowment effect, I guess. There's another one that he talks about. Um, it's called something like playing with house money or the house money effect, where once the, he discovered this at his own weekly poker game, where once you're up enough with your winnings to where you feel like you've kind of like made your money back, Everything above that, and we all know this feeling when you're at the gambling table, everything above that is just kind of like gravy. Like it's kind of like you can win it or you can lose it. And it's all fine as long as you go home at the end of the night with the money you put in. And so that feeling of the like above whatever amount that is, is called the house money. It's like you're playing with somebody else's money almost. Even though it's yours, you've won it. In reality, you could take those chips and go home at that moment with that money, it's yours. But it feels like it's not. It feels like somebody gave it to you. Well, you know that game, Deal or No Deal, right? Where they've got all yes. of those briefcases and each one of them has a card of a certain amount of money. And you're yeah, he, he, he describes it in great detail in the book and did a whole study on that stupid game show, which is <laughs> why we want to watch it, because we watch these people. We're sitting there where it's not us playing. So we're very rational. The guy who's sure. playing somehow he starts playing with house money and it's like he's got a quarter million dollars and he's gambling it when there's no way if that was his and it's his money. He could take the money and he doesn't. He rolls the dice and sometimes goes home with 10 cents. And he had literally had a quarter million dollars in his pocket, but he doesn't treat it like it's a quarter million dollars that he owns because it's house money. And the thing is, none of us like throw up our hands and make a big fuss over how insane that is because it makes total sense to us. <laughs> I know. And I've been teaching people to get to a place where they're playing with house money. And now I'm starting to think, oh, maybe that's not a good idea. Because for example, when we're talking about reducing your basis or reducing your risk capital in a company by getting dividends and by getting buybacks and by getting uh, doing options trades, you reduce the amount of money you have on the table and you can reduce the amount of money you have on the table down to zero. And from that point on, you don't have any of your money left 
on the table in that company and you're literally playing with house money. But now I'm starting to think, oh my gosh, that might be encouraging our students to take unnecessary risks or to not treat it like it's really their money when it is really their money. But there is absolutely a psychological difference. People love the idea of getting their retirement portfolios to a place where it's house money. I think it's a good point. I want to think about that a little bit because I think the benefit of it in the investing context, preliminary thoughts, let me be clear, uh, is that it takes away some of that weightiness of investing your own money on your own, which, as you know, I find very weighty. The idea that I have paid off my initial investment uh, through dividends, through buybacks, through um, I haven't done options at all, but let's say through options, then there, it, it, and this is totally the house money effect. It's a feeling of more freedom. It's a feeling of it's not the end of the world if I lose this money. Whereas yeah. the other, the other money, the first money, it feels like the end of the world if you lose that money because it's a big deal. It is. It's a big deal. Yeah. And, and it, it goes into something that we feel emotionally about the difference between making money and losing money that that uh, yeah. Taylor, Taylor discovered. And that is they've, they've been able to kind of get a metric on how much more emotionally it hurts us to lose money than we gain in, in joy from making money. And they found it's almost it's about a two to one difference in emotional impact when you lose yeah. money versus when you make it. So for example, it's a really important thing to know about. Really, really important. There's there's this great story about this guy who paid a thousand dollars to an indoor tennis club, and he was a the, this entitled him to play once a week all during the indoor season. So the guy's playing once a week, and he gets tennis elbow. All right, so now it hurts to play, right? So it makes it really painful. So here's the thing, though. He continues to play for three more months exacerbating the tennis elbow because, because he, didn't, he paid. Yeah, he didn't want to waste the $1,000. So he plays in I mean, pain. I totally get it. When it became unbearable, he finally had to quit. So in other words, he's not even having fun. So here's the thing. If somebody said, hey, come on over and play at our tennis club for free, he'd be like, oh, hell no. <laughs> in other words. It's the, it's the exact same thing as the, the tickets to the concert. You paid for it, so you use it. Yeah. And, and like the economists would say that the utility of playing tennis, the happiness you get from playing tennis is negative. But he paid $1,000, so he continues to play. He makes himself worse off every time he plays. So why would he do this? The econs would say he wouldn't do that. If, if your happiness goes down because you're doing something, you would stop doing it, the econs would say. But apparently sunk costs are so powerful that it drives you to do things even when it hurts. Fascinating, right? right? Okay, so right. for example, how does this, how do all these little things we're talking about come into play in football? That's what yes. we should see here. And okay, it's now fascinating. what you said was, so last time we finished the episode talking about football and you said, the Redskins are one of the teams that he discusses. And I was like, so what? So, so what, Dad? What's <laughs> what's the big deal about the Redskins? Well, the Redskins are, are incredibly 
unlucky in their football choices. Um, oh, really? Yeah, because a few years ago, they went into the draft and they um, they they felt they needed a quarterback. And there were two really fast sprinting quarterbacks, um, Andrew Luck, who was picked first in the draft by the Indianapolis Colts, and um, Robert Griffin III, who was coming up to be picked um, by the next team that wanted a quarterback. And so the Washington yeah. Redskins really desperately wanted a quarterback. And yeah, and that's in the book. But what is that what made you so interested in the Redskins in particular? Oh, no, it's that we can see. Yeah, it's what it's such a, a huge, obvious example of sort of the endowment effect and and their sort of misunderstanding about the value of, of early picks, um, which is what. Um, well, are they doing well? Like, how are oh, no, they're, they're getting crushed. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> so when well, you read the Redskins, you thought. Oh, this makes total sense. This because makes they're total terrible. sense because they're terrible. So let me just okay. sketch this out for everybody that doesn't know anything about the, the whole thing. Is that yes, uh, please? So Griffin is this phenomenal athlete, um, incredibly fast on his feet, great arm, all that stuff. Huge guy, like two hundred sixty pounds of all muscle. Really nice guy. The whole thing. He had the whole package. So uh, to be a great team leader and a great sort of uh, ambassador for the sport and for the Redskins. So Redskins owner wanted this guy desperately. I feel like you love him. Oh, everybody loves him. I mean, oh, seriously, okay. he's just a <laughs> fabulous he's such a guy. He's a good guy. He's an amazing person. I no, seriously, this guy, this guy's smart, handsome, smart. athletic, everything. He's got the whole package. His eyes are so dreamy. <laughs> Like that. <laughs> I don't know what his eyes like, but his arm is a gun. Yeah, right. His like arm is a know. gun. All sure. right, so here's this guy. He wants this guy, okay? Now, Thaler has already been consulting to this owner and, and has said, look, we have found that early choice draft picks are not nearly as beneficial to the team for what you're paying for them as second picks and third picks. Right. You mean the the early, not the early draft picks that you just get through the lottery. It's the early draft picks that teams trade for. Even the right. ones they get through the lottery, because those have enormous value, because there's a market for those early draft picks. There is an oh, actual yeah, that's market. True. So okay, just I knew zero about the NFL draft until I read this chapter. So maybe I should just give a little summary of how it works. Yeah, fire away. Okay, so here's how the NFL right. draft thing works. So all I ever knew was that on television every year, some sports people talk about a draft. and I knew nothing else. Here's how it works. So all these teams, NFL teams, this is NFL, not college. All these teams, when college football players graduate, then get to decide which football players they take for their professional teams. And the way that they do that is that they take the record of all the teams from the year before and they flip it so that the team with the worst record gets the first draft pick and the second worst gets the second draft pick and so on and so forth. And there's something to do with like rounds and I forget how that works between well, all the rounds. But there's only so many teams, right? So there's like Oh, that's right. That's right. Teams. Each, they, it's that each team gets a pick in each round. Right. So, and then there's like seven rounds. So that's the order. Right. 
full stop. But teams are allowed to create a marketplace amongst themselves for these draft picks so they can trade like whatever they want, whatever other teams will take. So if whoever the team is that gets has the first very, very, very first draft pick in the first round thinks like, oh, you know, maybe we could get something better for this. So they'll trade the first draft pick for like four picks in the lower down rounds. And this goes on like crazy. And they can trade future year draft picks, which is just, this whole thing is like opening my eyes to this whole world, which I know all of you fantasy football people like know (laughs) every little in and out about, but I had no idea. So that's how it works. They can like, they can trade, let's say for number one, you get like three draft picks in the current year that are lower down and like, won the next year and won the year after that. I mean, it's really a big deal, these trades. So I don't even know how anybody even keeps track of all of these things. It sounds so complicated. All right, there's big, your basic. Big giant market. And so the 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 question is, um, or the, the argument by the econs about efficient markets is that, yeah, there are people who are little people who are doing stupid things, but the people who really count, the experts, are not going to act in stupid ways. They're the experts. So what Thaler did is say, well, okay, let's go see if that's true. Let's go look at the owners and the managers of professional football teams. These guys are rich. They're experts. Surely they will behave rationally. It should be the most rational market anybody can find ever it's their entire job and it's a small market too so there won't be as many outliers right and so thaler did a bunch of research and found out that if you were to trade away your first draft pick and get what people were getting for that first draft pick like multiple other draft picks that you come out much better that the economic value of your football players uh, vastly exceeds the value of that first draft pick Almost all the time. In fact, um, oh my god! The wait, you stories. come out better. But wait, you come out better by actually taking people later in the draft. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's so go. The, so let's... the the assumption is that whoever gets the first guy, whoever gets the first pick, is going to take the best football player in the country. Right. And that guy is going to end up being amazing in the NFL and is going to win all sorts of games for that team. And what they actually have found is that that does not predictably happen at all. And it's guys who are picked later on in the draft who tend to be, obviously, since they're picked later, more like middle-of-the-road football players in college, tend to really come up and do well later on in in the NFL. Enough of them do that it it has created this database that Thaler uses to go out and and consult to these football teams. And what what you said earlier was that he, he has all this data. He can prove it absolutely. And yet these teams refuse to actually operate on the basis of that rational data. They, yeah. they, they have other priorities like getting it done right now, making it happen today, not tomorrow. A little bit like your financial advisors need it to happen now, not three years from now. And so in this case, the Washington Redskins are advised by Thaler. He, they, the owner is super excited about all this data, and he promises Thaler he's going to act in this way. And then up comes this opportunity to grab Griffin as a, for, as a draft pick. So they trade away 
all of the future draft picks they've got just this huge pile of draft picks they trade away to another team okay and they pick yeah it was something i'm trying to look up the exact number but yeah they they traded something massive because they wanted him so badly yeah and and they they end up drafting uh, rg3 right and they expect and they they think he's gonna become a, a superstar okay first year out the gate the guy looks like a genius. The Washington Redskins make it to the playoffs for the first time ever. But then RG3 gets hurt. Oh. I know. And he they and he comes back from the injury maybe too soon and gets hurt again. It's like a football movie, okay? He gets hurt again. And now his ability to move around in the pocket, his ability to run, all that thing starts to go downhill. And pretty soon he's not even starting. And so turned out that they gave up all these other picks to this other team and ended up with a guy who can't play. Yeah. And so he quotes uh, his contact at the team. He says, when we asked our contact what happened, we got a short answer. Mr. Snyder, that's the owner, wanted to win now. Because if they had actually followed the models, it would have taken a few years for it to shake out for the way the models predicted, because they would have had these lower down picks and it would have been a while of like not doing the trades and, you know, working out the trades that they had promised from years before. So it would have taken a little while. And this guy didn't want to do that. Oh, yeah. And the, and the sad thing is the next guy down that they could have picked without making all those trades was Russell Wilson. Which you don't know. Even Russell I know Wilson. Russell Wilson. Oh, there Wilson you go. Is. You know Russell Wilson. So Russell Wilson has taken Seattle to the Super Bowl twice and won at once. And he would have been <laughs> no charge to these guys. And here's the really horrible part. Is the team they traded all those picks for, uh -huh. that team played uh, Washington Redskins like two or three years later. And RGB3 was sitting on the bench. So... Washington was not playing the guy they traded for. And the, the, the coach for the other team sent out all of the players that they got from the Washington draft picks that they traded for as the captains of the game to get the coin. No, flip. they did not. Yes, he did. That yes, is the most amazing shot in Freud I have ever heard. <laughs> Those six guys came out for the coin flip. <laughs> oh, man. And you know that other coach knew exactly who they were, right? I'm, yeah, nobody else would have known. But Just yes, that those coach. back office guys knew for sure. Oh, That's oh really God. funny. Oh, my God. So I'll, I'll tell you, it's, it's crazy. But I, And we should probably wrap it up there. you got to read this book. And, and we'll go back and later maybe we'll dig into some of the real amazing psychological things that we do as humans, rather than econs, we're not econs, that we do that can really hurt us in our investing. And we should be well, aware I, of. Exactly. And I mean, that's what I find so interesting about this book is how it can help us get better at our own investing. And you just pointed out a major one with that football example, which is patience, 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 patience. patience. Patience and, and it's control. something we talk about constantly, but I think I find it somewhat comforting to read a book that tells me that, oh, like I'm not just being sort of a weirdo, crazy, like, you know, uh, impulsive person. I 
it's it's hard as a human. I think also Thaler, he positions everything very well because he positions himself, even though he's an economist, he positions himself as a human, as a capital H human. And he says often through the book, like he's kind of lazy and he's kind of slow at writing his economics papers (laughs) and he likes to drink whiskey and he just, he's constantly like, it's a good way to, to position himself instead of being this sort of like high and mighty, like economist person. He, he's constantly putting him with himself with us and uh, it makes it a better read for sure. Well, more of this into the psychology of being a great investor um, and the, the huge, huge growing, um, growing field of behavioral finance, which is just amazing. And we're right at the cutting edge of it. It's really exciting. And when you go and talk to I think we're contributing to it, Dad. What do you think? I think we're contributing to it actually a lot. We're training, gosh, I don't know, 3,000 people, at least maybe 4,000 people every year live. We're doing our podcast. Oh, well, we're doing a lot of stuff. You're doing that. that. Yeah. Yeah, we're doing this great podcast. So I'll tell you, man, I, we're really on the bandwagon. Uh, obviously, we owe an enormous, you know, voice of gratitude, first to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger for simply living this process uh, into the teeth of what they would consider a, a horrible theory of markets. Um, and then to to Dr. Thaler and the and and Kahneman, Tversky, uh, Schiller, and many many more of these researchers who have gone up against their own um, their own field, where they were considered pariahs, and and really you're taking your career in your hands to go up against a an existing paradigm, and they've done it they've done it with humor, and Thaler in particular is a funny guy and he's fun to read. Yeah. So go ahead. I think, you know, we we certainly haven't been talking about this from the point of view of behavioral economics at all. But I think that's what I find interesting about reading it is it's it's confirming the stuff that we've been talking about for so long. And I think we can then use this academic view of the reality that we've been talking about to inform us going forward, to inform the reality, to help us create better paradigms, better investing systems for us going forward as humans, capital H humans. And so next time <laughs> we're trying we'll, to learn investing. We'll talk about some of the things that Dr. Thaler has promoted in his research as ways to get control of our animal spirits. Animal spirits. Yeah. yeah. Until okay. then, time to go play. Thanks everybody. Bye. See you. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, and my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.